Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I am not joined, weirdly, uh, by Nizar Hassan this week. He's traveling right now, but we have somebody even better. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. We love you, Nizar. Uh, we, we've got a great guest, uh, a, a friend of the show, my colleague at the Daily Star, Tamor Asari. Welcome to the show, Tamor. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back for the second time in, I think, just a month. It was a month ago that, that I first came on when all of this started. Exactly. So, and we, we sort of have to talk about that a little bit later on. Of, of course, this entire podcast is just going to be talking about the protests because there's literally nothing else going on in Lebanon worth talking about. Everything is tied into this gigantic uprising that has been going on since October 17th. And we're going to be taking a little bit of stock of, you know, of what's been going on over the past month and a bit. First, like there are just so many things that happened this week, like every week is just jam packed with things that are genuinely surprising, things that you just don't see happening. One of those things happened this week, which you like everybody is talking about the supposed nomination of Mohammed Safadi. Right. As the next prime I mean, minister. Talk about a curveball. <laughs> which literally couldn't believe it. They're like, no, that is not that is not what's going on here. That's impossible. Very similarly, I was just sitting and I saw messages from like a group of journalists and they said, oh, Safadi's name is being floated. I'm like, come on, like we hear these like false, this false news like all the time. And then 10 minutes later, like our newspaper, the Daily Star broke it. We talked to sources and they're like, yeah, the major parties in government have agreed to Mohammed Safadi to be the next prime minister. Right. And and we'll we'll get a little bit more into why that was such a surprising thing in a minute but th- th- this was this happened sort of like late in the in the week this this happened on Thursday rewind just a little bit uh, back to Monday Monday we had a whole lot of people speaking and everything Nasrallah spoke but it, it seemed like there was no real movement or like there was no sense that the political class had an idea of what was going to be going on right from from the speeches we had Nasrallah speak we had Berri speak yeah. which he doesn't do that a whole lot. For, I think it was the first time since all of this began, actually, that he actually spoke. He usually gets an MP to go out and like speak on his behalf. Right. But uh, and we also had the central bank governor speak and like for over an hour, I think, or about an hour, defending his record and just kind of you know uh, saying, seeking to assure you know the public and depositors. Yeah, like saying a whole lot, but not saying a whole lot. Right. Uh, Samir Jaja spoke uh, later that day. I think Ibrahim Kanan spoke. Um, yeah. So we had a whole. A whole lot going on on Monday. There was just like everything. The political class clearly didn't really know what was going to be going on. They hadn't figured out a way forward yet. Move on to Tuesday, and President Aoun gave an interview to two of his, I guess, favorite journalists. Uh, right. Uh, and this was broadcast uh, on on all all the TVs in the country, and it was wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so people, you know, we've seen Aoun speak. I think three times it was before then, or, or was this his third time? Uh... He spoke twice to the nation and once live to his supporters. Right, twice to the nation, once live to his supporters, and then this interview comes along, and people had low expectations in a way because I mean, his past speeches were really badly received. They were just like spliced together, you know, uh, he seemed a little bit detached, a little bit, I mean, frail. Uh, and, and so especially this, that yeah, first speech, especially the first speech. And so this interview comes along. He speaks for a long time. Uh, they go th- to like three or four like breaks. He's speaking for like an hour and a half, I think. He, t- he talks about the usual, like, you know, I want to fight corruption. He asks people to get out of the streets. Basically, his, his, his take was, like, we need the roads to be open for the government to do its work, for a government to be formed, for, for us politicians to get started, you know, to do our stuff. And, and then he, he, he dropped this bombshell, right, where he told, he, he, towards the end of the, the interview, I think it was around the, the hour mark, where he said to protesters, if you don't think that there are decent people in the state, then emigrate. 
yeah, just just you know, touching to that core issue of you know of like Lebanese you know being Lebanese uh, in in the post-war period of just emigration, people leaving to find opportunities because they just can't find opportunities here. You know, they they leave the country, they send back money, uh, and and Hound is you know and and. I mean, people here have been, you know, rising up for a whole month against that kind of, you know, reality that has forced them to, to be out of the country. And then Hound just tells them, hey, if you don't like it, leave. It didn't go over well. I, you know, even before his speech was over, we had the Beirut ring road closed. We saw then reports from across the country, roads being closed again, fires being lit in main highways, you know, which we hadn't seen for a few days. Right. And, and yeah, and, and the street just reacted in the way that it has over and over again to these speeches that seem so detached. Uh, I mean, Aoun has really been the best at this, at mobilizing people. You know, every yeah, I think yeah, every in, time in a, he's spoken, he's yeah, gotten people to the in, streets. In a certain sense, he's like the protesters' best ally. Hundred uh, <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah. He's the cheerleader. He's Multiple like... people have told. So the day after Aoun spoke, uh, you know, the, the so through the night we had large protests. Roads were blocked until the morning, and then people started gathering at Babda Palace. You know, people were like, "Okay, we're going to go show Aoun that we're here, and we're going to tell him he should leave." You know, so they all show up to Babda Palace. People have said over and over again that if they just stop talking for like two or three days, we might stay home. But we we, we keep like going <laughs> home and then they keep giving new speeches or naming someone like Safadi and bringing us back to the streets. There was this like viral video on Twitter yesterday where this guy like is walking up the stairs to his house. He's like got a Lebanese flag wrapped around his head. He takes it off. His mom is like, come in, come in. Uh, the news is on. And and the son is like, oh, like what's happening? She's like, oh, they named Safadi as PM. He's like, oh, Yilan Arda. He puts the flag back around his head. He walks out. He's like, every time we want to come home, these, these guys make us go back to the streets, you know? And it's really, I mean, that... That, that's the feeling on the street. It's like every time you guys just do the complete opposite of what we want and, and say just incredible things that, you know, just make us incredibly angry. And, and so we're back. Right. And, and so amid the, these greater protests and this, you know, outcry, just like, what the hell did the president of the republic just say? Politicians are sort of like, oh, well, we need to get our act together and, and, and actually do something. Because, I mean, we, we really do need to do this because we need a government. We need all of these things to actually happen. And so, and they've been having, you know, behind closed doors meetings for a long right. time because that, that's how decisions are made. It's behind closed doors. So there was another one of those on Thursday that uh, I, I think it was Hariri Ali Hassan Khalil, who is uh, one of the top political aides to Nabi Berri, Hassan Khalil, who is one of the top aides to uh, Hassan Nasrallah. Um, and I think Basile was there. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But these guys met and they apparently here is where they decided Safadi, like that's who we're going to go with. And I guess to them, it sort of made sense. Mohammed Safadi is like sort of a mainstay of uh, Lebanese politics. He was uh, an MP for Tripoli from 2000 up until last year. And yeah. also he was he was in government for like a decade, he, like from 2005 until like 2014. During that time, he was, let's see, first he was the uh, public works and transportation minister. Um, he was also sort of the acting energy minister when uh, Mohammed Finish resigned right. with the yeah. Hezbollah ministers back in, what, 2006 or 2007. And then he moved on to the economy ministry. Uh, he had that for a, a couple of cabinets. And then he moved on to the finance ministry under uh, the second Makati government. Um, so he's like a big politician. He's also massively wealthy. Like he made a whole bunch of money in Saudi Arabia. And, and then he came back, he like, just just like Hariri did, right? Yeah, like, I mean, he's basically uh, the older Hariri. You know, he's 75 years old. He has the Saudi connection, you know, uh, just like Hariri's father did, just like Hariri did in better days. Uh, and uh, and yeah, yeah, he's he's a caricature of everything protesters don't want. 
You know, he's a business tycoon. He He's uh, allegedly involved in like corrupt and shady dealings, both in and outside Lebanon. And one of those is Zaytune Bay, which is like this like symbol of corruption where people have been protesting. People have been there protesting. Be, yeah, they've been protesting the place, yeah. for the past month. You know, people have been going to Zaytune Bay. And it's just like, yeah, it's a, he's, he's a caricature. But but from the, I guess, political classes standpoint, you know, if you're in this meeting, he makes a lot of sense because he's sort of like a known quantity. Mm. He's a safe choice with. for all of them. If yeah. you want to get something through, you know that, I mean, Safadi's game. I mean, Safadi has been a minister all these times. He's an MP. He knows he plays the game. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and not only that, he has lately been very closely allied with uh, Saad Hariri to, to the point where his wife is uh, in the cabinet right now, Violet uh, Khairala. She's in the cabinet right now. With some ill-defined portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and as part of Saad Hariri's share yeah. in, in the cabinet. But at the same time, Safadi, and, and, and let me add to that as well, back in the 2018 elections, Safadi said, I'm not going to run, I'm not going to put forward any candidate, but I'm going to put my electoral machine to work for the future moon, for Hariri right. in Tripoli. And uh, if you know anything about Tripoli politics, you know that like the Safadi electoral machine is just known to be very good. Mm. Uh, and so so he's very close to Hariri. He's been supporting Hariri. Uh, and there's been sort of like a, a give and take sort of this political bromance between the two over right. the past few years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, rumor has it that he's also very close uh, or, or on good terms with Aoun and the FPM um, and, and his wife as well. Like they are of a certain, I guess, class and persuasion where they're they're able to be this intermediary and and where they have good relations with multiple with multiple people so right. from their point of view it makes a whole lot of sense oh this is this is the ahad this is the time of like the, this big overarching political deal between the fpm and the future movement right and so it's safadi continuity is, it's continuity basically exactly yeah. and safadi is good with both of them so let's yeah. just put him in there and he's a new face. He has the trust of Hariri. He's got, you know, the trust of Aon. And we'll be able to at least move forward. Right. Right. So but, Yeah. But that, that I mean, I, I mean, I don't know who's buying that on the street. We saw protests literally after after it happened. We saw protests under his house in Tripoli and in Beirut. And they were saying, Killon Yani, Killon Safadi, Wahad Minnon. In all of them, all of them, Safadi is one of them. And they were already, in Tripoli, they were already calling for his ouster, which is hilarious. They're saying, Irhal, Irhal Safadi. And he's not even in yet. <laughs> so you started seeing these comments of like, Yasqut al Jay, you know, like down with the next government. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I think they must have been the, like these political, you know, these bigwigs making these decisions behind closed doors and everything thought, oh, this makes sense. This guy fits right in. Right. He's the perfect guy. We got to do something. This is something it'll work. And then, yeah, like and then the news gets out and, you know, you and me can't even fucking believe it. And and if we can't believe it, just as like analyst, observer, journalists, you know, the street, you know, just like you said, goes absolutely insane. And then I, th I think they realize Right. Oh, wait, wait. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. That Zaytuna Bay thing. Oh, right. He's, you know, he's this tycoon that has been in office for fucking ever. He, and so we is... see some backtracking starting to happen, right? And and it's Basile kind of jumped the gun because Basile yesterday basically said, you know, after the night. So we're, after we're the... recording this on Saturday, by right, the way. Right. So, uh, so on Friday morning, was it? Yeah. He spoke to MTV? Right. Yeah. On Friday morning, he spoke to MTV and he said, Safadi is pretty, pretty, pretty much going to be the next prime minister. Consultations will be called on Monday, and you know, if if all goes well, that's that's how it's going to be. 
And very soon afterwards, we get just get a reply, you know, statement from the future movement who are basically like, Basile is not the one who calls parliamentary consultations, it's the president. And he's completely like putting completely aside this constitutional mechanism of the parliamentary consultations. I mean, the thing is already a complete charade, right? I mean, we've seen this in the past days. The right. role of parliament, like how it's supposed to work is like, oh, the government is gone. Let's consult with MPs and parliament and see who they want. No, there's six or seven dudes who decide this and that's it. They decided right. ahead of time and then they get parliament to rubber stamp it, right? Right. But, but Basile like overstepped it just a bit too far, you know, because they like to keep this pretense of, oh, we still have the constitutional mechanisms and they're sensitive about like, you know, the role of the prime minister and this and the role of the president. And Basile is, I mean, probably the most hated figure on the street from these past 30 days. Right. So it was like, Basile, like, what, what are you doing? You know, just like, just please step aside. You're not part of this, you know. Yeah, and it, and it seems as well that Basile was just a little less quick on his feet than the future movement was. The future movement seems to have seen what actually happened on mm. Thursday night and, and saw, you know, just the incredible disbelief by from so many parts of society, and not just from future movement supporters, not just from protesters, but just, I think, from a very broad cross-section of Lebanese society saying this is this is insane right this would be really really weird for you guys to put Safadi there and they were quicker on their feet and they said oh well maybe we need to step back a little bit then Basile just jumps out there fails to recognize what is going on around him right and tries to push forward with it and falls on his face it seems uh I mean we 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 don't no, exactly, because, you know, we, we don't have a whole lot of like, it, it's not like Hurry is coming out and, and making tweets about all of this stuff or, or whatever. So we, we don't know what's going on right now, but we know that the future movement said, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. We had a statement from uh, former premiers, uh, Mikati, uh, Senora and Salam, Salam yeah. saying we support Hariri. Yeah. And Birri has already said throughout that he supports Hariri. So, so yeah, it's it's really uncertain at this point whether we'll see Safadi put in or whether this is kind of like Safadi being burned and and then Hariri can be the the savior who who rides back. Yeah. So, so so like there's there's one like conspiracy theory that like oh this evil genius Saad Hariri planned all of this and made this faint it, it, and also decided to stab his close ally Mohammed Safadi in the back hmm. you know yeah. it doesn't really it doesn't really <laughs> it, make sense it makes yeah. no sense because yeah. i mean hurry just isn't that strategic uh, it, you know it that it, it makes no sense on, on that level i i think what's more likely that happened is that okay they agreed on it hurry said all right if this guy's going to make things happen that's fine he's you know l l like you said he's 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 like hurry but 30 years older you know right. it, like he's in hurry's camp hurry will still get what he wants but then everything sort of exploded in their faces and her was like, oh, hold on, we can't do this anymore. Right. That, that seems like a much more logical explanation. It'll be interesting to see to what extent the, the reaction on the street uh, influences this decision. Because I think in the beginning we saw, you know, with, especially with the fall of the government, with the budget that they passed, you know, even the first night when they said the WhatsApp taxes are gone, it really seemed like the people were part of like this push and pull with the political class. Uh, I, I, th I think that's subsided a little bit now. There's, It's become, you know, like the street has kind of become one thing and politicians seem to have gone into their own sort of room. But it'll be interesting to see whether that, that you know, the street, uh, you know, the street is still powerful. The street is still there across the country. You know, people are still in the streets today. And and so, I, I, yeah, I think it'll just be interesting to see to what extent the, the anger on the street or the refusal on the street will play into this. 
Yeah, yeah, and and to be absolutely clear on this, uh, uh, like I said, we're we're recording this on Saturday, so any number of things could happen, right? But also, even without Hariri's votes from MPs, right. Safadi could be named if if Hezbollah decides he's our guy, if Amal decides he's our guy, if uh, the FPM goes with him, he's our guy, and and a few of their allies, they've easily got more than enough MPs, uh, you know, uh, for a majority. So Safadi could be named prime minister. Now, whether he would go along with that, being the head of basically a March 8th government, right. is a whole nother question. And in any case, this government will be more March 8th than the last one, because the LF are not going to be part of it. The LF had four ministers in the last government. So we, I mean, really, it's only Hariri that's keeping up the national unity, uh, you know, aspect or the, you know, or the, or the cross March 14th, March 14th, March 8th aspect of this. I mean, the rest is FPM, Hezbollah, and Amal. Yeah, and, and this is also something, uh, uh, having a March 8th government or more of a March 8th government is also kind of problematic for, for the March 8th types as well. You know, they, they don't want this as well. That's not their first choice. This is why they want Hariri. Ideally, they want Hariri himself. But also, if they go with Safadi, whether or not, you know, Hariri joins them and, and supports them or not, it, it, it could be very problematic. Amal Saad, who's a Lebanese university professor, uh, studies Hezbollah, uh, is, you know, generally supportive of them, tweeted something that if, if it's true that Hezbollah has endorsed Safadi in the name of political consensus, it will be very hard for the party to frame its nomination of a corrupt billionaire whose political history is riddled with anti-resistance stances as a strategic calculation to protect its arms. You know, she, she's basically saying, like, internally, this, is, this choice would be very problematic for Hezbollah. And, and if, they, if they end up doing this, then, like, there's a whole other set of calculations that they, that, that they have to make and a whole other set of challenges of just convincing everyone, like, no, this is really, like, this is our best shot. This is the right way forward. It makes them seem more like any other political player who just want to get into government by any means possible, you know, right. rather than being the resistance who are, you know, intent on having this uh, strong, you know, anti-Israel, you know, presence. And, and also it, and, it and strikes... And generally it, being just like... We're the moral party. Exactly. We're, we're the ones with ethics. We're the know? ones who aren't corrupt. We're the ones who yeah. you know, entered government yeah. very late. We aren't responsible for the years of crisis. We are the ones who fight corruption. You know, this is what Nasrallah said this week at the beginning you know, on his Monday speech. He went on for a very long time about supporting the fight against corruption. And he's, you know, he, he spoke to judges directly and said, start with us. You know, we will lift political cover off anyone. And they have, you know, their MPs have put forward corruption related files. So they've tried to make themselves the party of anti-corruption and, and wash their hands of any of the, you know, corruption and mismanagement in the state. This makes that more problematic. Yeah. Uh, th this week, we also saw another trend that I personally, I find very, very disturbing. And, and that is the army's role in suppressing protests. And, and they've taken a, a much more aggressive posture this past week. Definitely. We, somebody was actually killed. After uh, the president's speech on Tuesday, a bunch of people went out and burning tires, all that stuff. Well, down in Halde, they put up a roadblock and there was this uh, a PSP supporter, Zumblati, who was there. PSP supporter who also, by the way, has been like, has, uh, you know, spoken about how the, the revolution has made him more sort of you know, distance himself from the party. You know, he was in the streets, I, I don't think as a PSP. I mean, it's it's debatable whether he was there as a PSP supporter or someone who actually supports like this movement and the demands of this movement. Right, right, right. Which, which I mean, that's a whole nother yeah, that is, yeah. topic about like how there are people with these sort of like I don't want to say dual loyalties, but, you know, sort of like, no, they know something is really wrong. Maybe they fought their entire lives for this one party, but they know 
the system is fucked. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, and, but anyway, yeah. he he was there. Um, his name uh, Allah Abu Fakhr. You've probably heard his name or read his name this week. Something happened. There there was this a vehicle trying to get through. Uh, it was Army intelligence. It was a colonel. Colonel in the vehicle. Uh, his name was Naufal Dal, and his driver, Colonel Dal, got into some sort of physical altercation because he wanted to get through uh, right. the, the the roadblock. Something happened, and according to the army, his driver shot Abu Fakhr, who was there with his wife and kid. They saw him die. There's a there's horrible video of uh, his his wife just screaming and and his son. Uh, sitting in in her lap and she's just trying to close his eyes and he's also screaming it's heavy i mean uh, it, it had a big impact i mean Huge. this this yeah. you know went went all over lebanon we saw you know people uh painting murals uh yeah, for him straight up away, in tripoli in tripoli uh and and candlelight vigils really across the country everywhere in khalde they they set up candles around his blood stain you know in the street and, and through flowers there and it, it was extremely touching it was it was another sign again just of the country sort of united from Arsal to Tripoli to Tir to to everywhere sort of and they and they were they were really saying here this is our martyr you know he is not of the PSP he is not Jumblat's martyr he is ours uh, even though you know Jumblat straight away like went to the hospital you know he gave his condolences that he was uh, Jumblat's son was at the funeral as were people from other political parties but the street really claimed Ala Abu Fakhr Right. And then uh, the next day, uh, of course, there were a lot of people who tried to protest uh, Aoun's speech up in Babda. They tried to actually physically go there. And one of the people who tried to go there was named Khaldun Jabr. And he was apparently taken into custody by plainclothes people. We, we believe it was army intelligence. And he was taken into custody. We didn't know what was going on, where he was, what was happening. Uh, but the next day he was released and he <laughs> pulls up his shirt cameras rolling live broadcasting across the nation uh and shows a bunch of marks on his back yeah so clearly he uh you know was uh, the implication here is that the army uh had mistreated him in custody right and on the news of safadi being named the next pm we have people taking to the streets in Jaladib, especially we have a lot of people taking to the streets blocking the main highway there the army steps in with the commandos special forces yani fojal magawir they're there to clear people off of the streets. And, it, you know, again, we see these, these scenes of people getting beaten. This guy who just has blood, like, pouring from his head. Another guy, uh, actually, it's, it's crazy because on the video, there was one guy who was beaten on the head with blood coming out. A guy goes and helps him. And you see him, like, put his hands to the camera. His hands are covered in blood. And he's like, you know, this is what the army is doing. That yeah. guy then gets beaten up. And the next morning, the you know media basically go and and talk to him as he's outside of the hospital. He's wearing a you know like a hospital gown, and he lifts it up, and he's just bruised, man. He's battered. And and the army that night also are, in total arrested twenty people uh, between Beirut and and Jaladib. They released nine uh, as of yesterday. They announced that they had released nine, and the the rest remaining in custody for for investigation. And two people were, you know, activists have have claimed that they were disappeared by security forces between the the ring road and Jemaze. So they basically left uh, the ring road, and somewhere in between the ring and Jemaze, they were taken into custody. Nobody knew where they were again overnight. And then the next morning, people started gathering outside the Jemaze police station. They were handed over by, our, by the army to uh, ISF, put in the Jemaze police station, people gathered outside, and then they were re released eventually. 
So yeah, we've we've seen the army really stepping up its role. It seems like an order has come down from somewhere that, hey, we you know we don't want people blocking roads anymore. And 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 and, and problematically with all of this is that apparently whatever army units are doing this don't have the, like the highest levels of professionalism and accountability going on. Right. You 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 really just can't have a colonel getting into a scuffle. Uh, you know that that's just enormously negligent. You and you can't have people being taken into custody and getting beaten and then released the next day. Show, I mean, I mean this, this has just been, I, I think, devastating for the Army's uh, reputation. Right. Uh, and, I mean, not, not to mention just, you know, the human rights things. I mean, the Army is one of the few institutions that Lebanese broadly respect. Right. All right. I, I think it, it's important, though, to to talk about, like, sort of the underlying economic problem here as well, because we also got news on that this week. We already spoke a little bit about uh, Riyad Saleme coming out and saying very little in his speech. This question about changing liras to dollars so that people get import and stuff like that. He didn't really, you know, come out and say, oh, well, I've solved that. Here's the mechanism uh, and here's what we're going to do. No, it was much more just like a, a mostly a defense of, of of his own you know policies and legacy. Right. He he spoke for like twenty minutes about his legacy, how he's trying to maintain the lira since the civil war, uh, and then he said that there would be no haircut, you know, on large deposits because that's something that was being talked about. There was a, this uh, you know opinion piece by Dan Azzi, who's increasingly been been kind of speaking about this, as of other people. He also said there would be no capital controls, which is kind of crazy because there are already de facto capital controls for you and me, for average right. people trying to get a thousand bucks out of the bank, but there's no capital controls on big depositors, you know, and his ar big argument is that, well, Lebanon like lives off foreign inflows. If we put in place capital controls, we'll scare away those inflows. I mean, I, I guess that's a point of view, but the, the, the fact is that we are dealing with capital controls as normal people here. Yeah. And you can only, you can't really keep that under wraps. If capital controls are going to be scaring away dollars coming into the country, well, we already have capital controls. It's just, you haven't announced them yet. And people aren't fucking stupid. Like they, they, I think the diaspora has gotten wind of this by and large. Right. By the way, speaking of the the dollar situation, it may be a lot worse for BDL than what we think. Tofik uh, Gaspard, who is a, an economist, uh, former advisor at the finance ministry, came out this uh, week and said, "Well, actually, BDL's net FX position is negative forty nine billion dollars. Basically, BDL owes." about $50 billion more than what they actually have. So when you have Riyad Salemi coming out and saying, we have $38 billion, we're fine. Well, how much do you owe though, is basically what Gaspar is saying. And by his calculations, we owe so much more. Right. Along with that, uh, Standard of Poor's downgraded Lebanon from B- to C this week. I mean, they're sort of like the, the laggards, right? Right. We kind of already knew we were junk, <laughs> and, and they're just coming. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and it's like further into junk, right? Um, but but they're so they're the last ones to uh, of the three big rating agencies to push Lebanon down into C territory. Of course, just like ten days prior than that, Moody's downgraded Lebanon even further into C territory. So S and P is sort of like catching up with. Uh, I, I think Moody's has definitely been uh, the the strongest on this and uh, they've been sort of the trailblazer on this and S&P has been sort of the laggard on this so right. far uh, Moody's seems to be more on the ball on this uh, and more more have a better uh, picture of what's going on and all of this is happening as banks are closed again this week you know they closed for the first two weeks of the uprising 
and the and now largely been, the largely peaceful uprising, right? The, the, yeah. yeah, the largely peaceful uprising. They closed for the first two weeks, and and now they've been closed again for a week. And there's this quote in a Reuters story that I think kind of shows you the the rationale, uh, you know, of the bankers right now. Reuters said, uh, spoke to a banker who told them, you need to have a political solution to offer a little bit of confidence, and this will eventually allow you to calm down the market and, and reopen normally. He said, you have a problem of liquidity and there is no solution for it. Unless you put in a proper plan to solve the problem, there is no need to open the banks. So they're basically keeping bank closed in, in waiting for some kind of political solution that'll you know prevent a run on the banks. Meanwhile, we're sitting here like, Holy shit, banks are closed again, you know, for a week. They were closed for two weeks before. I want to get my money. Like, I, I need my money, you know, I, uh, and, I, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to wait for a run on the banks for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. That's and, a- and I think you have strong uh, opinions on, on this bank uh, strike because <laughs> the, the ones who led this bank strike are employees, right? They're, they kind of came out and said, we're doing this because we're scared. Right, right. I, I've got questions about this whole thing. So, so just to put everything in, in perspective, yeah, we, we, the, the banks were closed for two weeks straight after the outbreak of the uprising. And then they opened up for like a week from November 1st through November 8th, they were open. And then they decided to take a long weekend. It was uh, the uh, Prophet Muhammad's birthday, which usually you get a day off for that. But the, took the banks took two. They took, uh, and, and the way they did it was they split it. So banks are always off on Sunday they decided to take Friday and Monday. So banks were then closed for three days. And then on Monday, we had the union come out and say, oh, well, we are very concerned about uh, employees' safety. And, and to be fair, a lot of employees, are, they're, they're facing some irate customers, right? The customers are like, give me my money. You have my money. I need my money. I have a legal right to my money. You're going to fucking give it to me. And, and right. some of these people get you know, like go way over the top with this, right? So there is this um, uh, th- this question of, you know, things are getting a lot more tense at banks, Definitely. Right? I mean, just a small anecdote that gives you a sense of this. When I went to Blom Bank, uh, you know, in downtown Beirut, there was a man standing at the door locking it after every customer came in, the metal door. He would ask the customers what they wanted before they entered the bank. And then as soon as they came in, he would lock the door and take the key out, put it in his pocket. The next customer would come. He'd take the key out again, unlock it. So th- this, is, this is like, you know, serious concern here. Exactly. But that, that anecdote is perfect, though, because that illustrates how, well, actually, you can manage this security situation pretty, pretty well. Hmm. Every single bank in the country has private security guards. They're already there. There is a way without even doing fancy like install metal detection. Like, no, no, no. There is a way just do exactly like that bank was doing. Let only, you know, certain people in have the security guard. Keep a close watch of who's coming in, who's coming out. Uh, If you need to decide, you know, do pat downs. Absolutely. Do all of that. All of that is easily implementable without any extra costs. But they're just shutting them down. But they're just shutting them down. Right. And and add add to this a couple of other things. Now, this this union, it doesn't represent all of the banking employees. It represents maybe 11,000 out of some 26,000, something like that in the entire sector. So less than half of the employees are being called to strike. And we know the way things work in Lebanon is like, strikes are eh, a lot of times uh, with with certain like really well organized uh, unions uh, as exceptions. Other than that, a lot of times somebody will call a strike. Maybe some of the employees won't show up, but a lot of the employees, uh, even union members will show up. So 
had banks decided to just go ahead and open up on Tuesday, maybe with, you know, some extra security precautions, all of that stuff, just because they should want to keep their employees safe. It seems that they probably could have, and at least half of the employees would have shown up. Right. Right. And probably more than that. Yeah, but they just decided to close. It was an excuse to close, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And that is what everyone who is observing this, like all of the observers say, well, clearly this is the banks doing this. The banks want to close down and they're using this as a pretext. They're winking at the employees union and saying, you guys call for a strike. So we have to close right. when really it's the banks who don't want to open. They don't want to open their doors and they're using this as just like the flimsiest of pretexts, really. Right. And this but this kind of takes us to sort of the last point we want to explore here, which is like the kind of big picture a month on. And, and today, a month on, I mean, banks have been closed for a week. Fuel stations are closing early because they're rationing fuel. Uh, schools have been closed. Universities have been closed. You know, the country is... is Hospitals went on strike yesterday because they can't import medical uh, supplies. There we go. I mean, that's the situation we're in. And uh, again, from this Reuters story, this this quote from uh, Hani uh, Bahsali, he's the general manager of Bahsali Foods, and basically he's the head of the syndicate of importers of foodstuffs who re- represent 50 importers. And he said that he had met with businessmen and the central bank governor and bankers, and he had told them, my message to all of them is that we are all in deep trouble, but you have to give priority to the food supply because the food is even more important than the fuel. I mean, we literally have a guy here, you know, ahead of an importer syndicate saying, guys, the food, seriously. We're at, that, we're at this point. We're now. at that point. It's, it's astounding. And, yeah. and, and we've increasingly seen politicians kind of try to lay the blame on the, on the street protesters for this, right? But we know that we were heading towards this crisis way before these protests began. I mean, there was talk of wheat shortages, of food shortages. Yeah. We had fuel strikes many times in the lead up to these protests, right? But, but this is the situation in Lebanon today. Meanwhile, I mean, you know, you, you have a political class who are still today, you know, bickering, doing the same old political bickering one month on. They've been completely unresponsive to like the main demands of the street, right? The easiest thing was getting rid of the government. The easiest thing, because yeah. that's sort of the weakest link. It's like the front, you know, the front of the whole political class. And, and some say Hadidi was sort of sympathetic and, you know, did it against the will of Hezbollah. Okay, the government went. But I mean, what are the demands of protesters? A government of experts, you know, independent experts. A new electoral law, early elections. I mean, that's sort of, we can all agree, you know, on those sort of things. And like an independent judiciary. Where are we at all closer to that today than 30 days ago? Yeah, it, it, exactly. No, it, instead, it seems as though we are we are in the void, which is what politicians warned us about, or more, I mean, the way I read it is threatened, threatened. us. It, it, well, if you, if you do this, if you make the government resign, then, well, we're, we're going to keep playing our games. And you know our games. And so it's going to take a long time to sort this stuff out. So sorry, if you if you pull this trigger, it's on you. Right. You know, and so what what are we left with a month afterwards? We're left with no government. Parliament was postponed again. It, it should have opened on October 22nd. It didn't. And now the earliest session, if it happens, will be next Tuesday on the 19th. Right. But it seems as though no parliament, really. So we've had basically a void in Parliament as well. We've right. had a void in the financial system, this questionable imports of basic needs. And, and we have a, a, a president as well who doesn't seem to be running at full throttle. You know, right. yeah. uh, this is this is the situation. Everything we're, we're in this this void and something's something's got to give at some point. Right. I don't know what that's going to be, but because the, the politicians 
don't seem to have an idea of how to get. I mean, their their idea was to put Safadi in. Really, that was their idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's. I think it's important to note that like there have been ex- extremely important, you know, uh, advances made by the people in the streets over the last thirty days. The institutional change that they want really hasn't happened, and that's extremely difficult. I mean, you can't change a post-war, you know, it's very hard to change a post-war regime that's been in power for 30 years in 30 days. Uh, But what has happened is that you've seen a sort of cultural and social shift that is really ongoing today. I mean, this, this, you know, reconciliation between uh, an older generation that fought against each other and a newer generation that were sort of suspicious of each other because of, you know, what they had learned, that that has been going full throttle. Uh, You you see it every day in the squares, just people walking around, intermingling. Today we have a bus going from Akkar all the way to Tyr in the south, uh, you know, Sur, uh, which just, you know, this sign of unity. And we've seen these signs of unities over and over again. People kind of saying, we want to be done with the civil war. We are ending the civil war now, despite what you do or not. And and I think that's interesting because if you t- if you speak to people on the street, they'll tell you, yes, we want a new government. But also, we've kind of gotten what we wanted in a way, uh, you know, just being on the streets together and continuing to be on the streets together. And, and people have sort of fallen in love with the streets because they've become this symbol of just, uh, you know, ra- rather than going to a bar or going home after work, you go to the streets to see your people. And, and the, you know, no matter where they're from or their age, there's the vibe, the similar vibe is there to use a, a term that's maybe a bit, uh, you know, <laughs> not very journalistic. But, but there is there's a sort of this, just this uh, togetherness on the street that is really beautiful. And I think that people have really held on, are really holding on to and will be very difficult to go back from. And, and I, I think it's also symbolic that at least here in Beirut, this happens in downtown, which probably has not seen this many people on a sustained basis since the civil. Like, I don't know. Like, it's it's been a very, very long time since people actually went to downtown for an extended period of time. Right. And uh, there and there have been small, small victories like that, like getting the parliament session postponed. You know, the people there, there were literally thousands of people ready to make a human chain around parliament. Uh, you know, on the day the session was supposed to be held because they were they were against some laws, you know, on the agenda and the session was postponed. We've seen organizing on an independent level that really we haven't seen, uh, you know, since before the Civil War, uh, you know, basically on, on a union level, creating new unions for for journalists, you know, for for the lawyers yesterday went on strike, basically in opposition to the to the crackdown on, you know, on, on protesters. So the, the country is moving. Uh, they're organizing based on profession, you know, and and it's uh, and that's when one of the strongest way to organize because it gives legitimacy to, to right. this movement. AUB doctors going on strike, you know, wearing their their doctors' uh, uniforms. Judges going on strike, wearing their robes. It it, it gives this le- legitimacy to the to the movement and says we have professionals, you know, who are putting their weight behind this movement and saying this represents us. Right, 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 and 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 that is that is extraordinarily important, and I think it as we look back over the past month, that is something to recognize of just like, oh, wow, this is this is huge. But at the same time, I keep coming back to this thing of just like, well, at the same time, though, I don't, I don't want to say it's a failure of the protest because it makes it sound like I'm blaming the protesters. But like one of the failures so far of the protests is they haven't made it clear to politicians like they they haven't gotten their message through to the politicians yet the politicians are still playing their games right and they I don't mean, understand they're like no no things are different now you try to put forward a name like Safadi and it's going to cause problems right you know it, it, they don't they don't get it yet because they keep trying to just do the same thing over and over again and and I I, I assume at some point that something will get through 
but it hasn't yet. And it's been a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's as you said, something has to give. And whether it's an indictment of the politicians, you know, it for, for not for not, uh, you know, appealing or, or responding to that, or it's an indictment of the protesters tactics. The point is that, yes, I mean, the change hasn't been, you know, the, the the message hasn't gotten across. So that that raises the question of like, what should happen next? I mean, you know, what are the tactics that we'll see develop over the next days, you know, as as this continues? Because I really don't think it will stop. We've got the the anniversary or not the anniversary but the we've got the one month mark coming tomorrow uh these you know october 17th to november 17th and then five days later we have independence day which will i think be quite large we've we already have reports of people flying in from abroad to, to be here for that and last year's independence day was this uh, military parade for the political class in downtown. Uh, they they made traffic, you know, uh, they, they made an incredible amount of traffic just for the rehearsal for this invite-only military parade. I don't think that's yeah. going to fly this year. <laughs> well, uh, we, we will find out. And, and of course, all of this is happening against the backdrop of the other shoe that could drop, which is something economic or financial. And so this, I, I think you're right, this is not over yet. And there's probably the like the biggest things to happen are still yet to come. Yeah. And I think we'll have to leave it right there. We'll we'll keep tabs on this, of course. Uh, I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Taimud Azhadi. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.